Hey, it's so good to be back, and uh, I, um, I'm excited to finish out our series. We do have our Wednesday night studies that will continue on. I think this is the last Wednesday that they'll meet and kind of finish out the rest, the rest of uh, the readings that have gone through in the, the Gospel of John. Just by uh, just interest, kind of just show of hands, how many of you actually read all the passages through the John? You read through the Gospel of John. Good job. Good job. Stars in your Bibles, um, in heaven somewhere. Jesus is so happy with you. Uh, no, I think uh, what's interesting is that we are discovering to keep us connected uh, as a body like this, it's important that we do some of those kinds of journeys. And many of you have just kind of said, this was great. Um, can you offer more reading plans like this for us to stay connected that way? Um, can I also encourage you, though, that's why um, even the services are real catalytic. I would say that none of us um, on staff and in elder board would say that our church is defined by our services, but they seem to have kind of a rhythmic part of who we are, and a lot kind of stems out of this gathering. And so if you're on vacation, uh, if you're somewhere, boy, you can pull up live stream and watch. Um, you can watch on your cell phone now, which is crazy that you can actually do that. Um, don't try that in here. I don't know what would happen. Um, might have like this delay. Who knows? But there's a lot going on, and we're excited. And I'm just telling you, for the fall, we're very excited about what God's doing. Uh, we, have some, we have five amazing speakers from between um, August and September, or, uh, December. Um, John Dixon's coming back. Um, Craig Gross will be back. Uh, we have uh, Sean Callahan from Europe that's going to be here. Um, we have quite a, a big lineup, so we're pretty excited about what's coming in the fall. But it's not fall yet, by the way, so I um, don't know if you knew that. It is still summer. Uh, Book of John, we're finishing up chapter 20, so if you don't have a Bible, if you would like one, they're on the carts. If someone could grab one for you, you could raise your hand, they might get it for you. Uh, raise your hand. John chapter 20, and as the last part of this chapter was a kind of a theme for us, and that is that uh, John will say that therefore uh, there are many other signs that Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. John's really saying, hey listen, there are a lot of the things that Jesus did. Uh, don't discredit, you know, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, they wrote some good stuff too. These are the things I chose. And John has a specific goal in mind when he writes John. We know that it's about 40 to 50 years later, that he's going to write to really the world. Many of you probably would say to people if they're going to read the Bible, hey, read the book of John. You probably don't even realize why you say that. It's because the book of John tends to have a, a broader scope in the whole world. The message is one to believe, and it says that. These have been written. I wrote these, John's saying, so that you may believe, now watch this, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus' last name isn't Christ. We say Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed one or Messiah, one they had waited for. The Jews have been waiting throughout the Old Testament and still many today wait for a Messiah to bring restoration. It is to believe in that Jesus is this Messiah, but that he's also the Son of God that there is a deity, there, that, that there's a, he is a part of the Godhead, and believing that you may have life in his name. 
that his death and resurrection bring a life, a payment for your sin. This is really important. And John wants to make sure that you know it's important. Now this really leads us into what we talked about, really his entire theme, and that is believing is seeing. Not seeing is believing. Our culture today makes it kind of a, a, a part of culture is to, to prove things. Make sure, I, I, don't, I won't believe it until I see it. How many of you have been in a situation where someone says, no, I'm not buying that. You'll have to show me. I, I'm not buying that. And we tend to doubt that even about what we see on TV today, rightly so. What we read, everything kind of has this now, see it before I believe it. But John writes, you must believe first and then spiritual sight is given. It's a paradox, isn't it? It's completely opposite of what we know to be true today where we want evidence first. John is going to say that no, what God is saying, the paradox of the kingdom is by believing, God brings insight. Friends, many of you are struggling to, to help a friend or a family member know Jesus. You want them to believe, but you find it difficult because you can't bring enough proof. You can't make them see enough. And we're going to talk about that today, but this proves this phrase of what G John is talking about, and that is, belief comes first, and then sight is given. Uh, especially in a world today that is so uh, steeped in proof and in backing things up and science, and things have to meet, meet some kind of form of logic. So I want to talk about a couple words this morning, and one of them is one that you've heard before, but it's all throughout the Bible. There's a word that's used in the Old and New Testament, both Hebrew and the Greek, and it's unbelief. Uh, another word to say would be is two words that get kind of behind this word or describe this word are distrust. I will not place my trust or confidence in, or even the word disobedience. In other words, unbelief means a complete walking away from something, turning your back. Interesting enough, this is why the word repent in the other Gospels, and especially in Paul's language, repent means to turn away. If I'm distrusting and unbelieving, it says turn away from your unbelief and turn toward belief. Now, unbelief uh, has different forms. And many of you this morning might be thinking, well, um, unbelief isn't so bad. And in terms of the Scripture, actually it was. It was a very dark term. It was hard-heartedness. It was disobedience. It had attachments to being called evil and dark. But today, we kind of say, well, I just don't believe that. It's very casual. In the Scriptures, it means much more. And so you'll see it pop up. Hebrew writers will talk about it. In Hebrews 3, it says, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So there was, there was some darkness attached to this. Now, there are forms of unbelief today that I want to talk about, and a couple that probably might be new to you. Um, first is this term agnostic. Uh, it basically comes from the word um, gnostic, meaning knowing. There was Gnosticism that was in the culture at that time, that knowledge was king, and knowing things meant you were superior. Uh, we really have a culture that's around knowing and knowledge, and that's really important. 
You know, we think about how we grow up in, in, edu- in our educational system. You are awarded by knowing certain things. So it, it means uh, in here, in the religious sense, an agnostic believes that it's impossible to know if gods exist or believes that the answer may, may in principle be discovered, but it's currently not known. In other words, an agnostic might say, sure, there could be gods. No way to prove it. There's no scientific way. There's, there's no way to prove this. Now, what's interesting today, I think actually agnostic, this agnostic term is kind of a safe place for people not to have to address you spiritually. You know what I'm talking about? You're in a conversation about God or religion. Oh, I'm agnostic. That means don't talk to me, right? I don't know if there's some pure agnostics out there, but there probably are. A lot of people kind of use this as a way not to talk about their faith. Today, there's another term that's come out, and that is um, there are those that may, may call themselves Christian agnostics. Now, this is kind of confusing. It would be people that would say they have Christian claims to faith, um, but acknowledging the idea that you can't know it for sure. Now, I don't know if this really counts as pure faith, but I think there's a lot of people that fit this category that would say, I think there is something out there. I think there might be a God. I think that's very possible, but I don't think we can know. And I think there's a lot of people in our culture today that have grown up very religious, maybe grasping onto some thoughts about God, kind of hoping that God's true and real, but maybe fit into this category. And maybe we wouldn't call it Christian, but maybe a seeking agnostic. Somebody who's trying to find truth. And so, uh, I think this is an interesting phrase. Now, these are kind of two softer ways or terms of people that might not believe in God fully, but it gets even harder and more drastic when we look at the term atheist. Now, interesting today, uh, there are many that would quote that say there are very few pure atheists. Because truly, an atheist Uh, that is pure in just the sense that they do not believe that deities exist, that there's no God or gods. And they would just believe that they're they're not unpleasant to talk to. Uh, John Dixon, who will be here um, in the fall, has actually small groups in his home, atheist small groups in his home, where he dialogues about faith and is friends with them. And that was very confusing for me to hear, that you're friends with atheists? How do you do that? Because it's non-antagonistic. There is a healthy dialogue about that. And today, I think in America especially, we have a different form of atheism that becomes more attacking mode. Now, many will say they're not pure atheists. They're more angry religious people or angry Christians that were offended or hurt in some time in their journey and have it out to make sure that other people know their fury and their pain. A term that's used for this would be called new atheism. Now, this has been made popular by some recent authors, but new atheism, I think it was coined by Wired Magazine, is more aggressive and anti-religious. It's a form of atheism that presupposes the validity of scientific theories and reason and applies them to religious phenomena in an attempt to disprove that God exists and that religion is dangerous. These are all the groups now that exist in our culture that are attacking, like, you know, the, the, when we have God in our anthems or our pledges or crosses or things between schools and, 
and what we can do with, with state and religion. And so there is a whole group of people that are trying to strip away God. It's not just, I don't believe God exists. It is, I not only don't believe, I have it out for war against. And so I think it's important to note this morning that there's some varying, uh, uh, I guess, degrees, if you will, a continuum of disbelief where it gets to the extreme of actually antagonistic or or opposing faith at all. I would probably assume that some this morning fit somewhere on this scale. The problem I'm having this morning is, I think when we read this John chapter 20, John uh, is going to address one of his friends, the disciples, uh, the doubting disciple Thomas. And what's interesting about this is that Thomas kind of gets, has gotten a bad rap, right? How could he doubt? How could someone doubt the existence of one that they followed for three plus years, saw amazing miracles, and how could he demand this in this text? And we're going to find that doubt is actually something that's quite allowable and is not associated necessarily with unbelief. Now, doubt in the Scripture is, again, all throughout it. Doubt has its definition or its root words based in like being suspended. It'd be like pushing the pause button on a DVD player, like suspended for a moment, not moving forward but not moving backward. Uh, another way to say it, it's, it's tossed by wind, someone who moves back and forth. In other words, there's not a sure footing. It's someone who has a little bit of a wavering in what they believe. And everything is not rock solid. Now this morning, I want to just talk about doubt. Because I think we need to normalize and have some permission to have doubt this morning. I don't know about you, but usually every Saturday night, knowing that I'm going to be up here, there's an element of doubt. Sometimes there's that time where I push the Bible aside and I'll say, really, all of this is true? That may shock you as a teacher, one who's trying to teach you to be more confident in your faith and to live out your faith, but it's true that there is a tension with the things that I don't know and can't fully understand. Someone can ask me about the Trinity. I can tell you what the Trinity is by words, but I don't understand it. There are elements of doubt. Now, doubt comes to play often, especially with people with faith that's not rooted very deeply. Psalms 1 says that, that the writer, uh, David, talks about be that person that is living by streams of water, by, by drinking in the truth of God so that the roots go deep. When we don't do that on an ongoing basis, when we're not in dialogue about the doubts in our lives, we can become more insecure about our faith. And so we can even find ourselves that doubt can lead us into places of unbelief. But let me give you a little bit of a difference between doubt and unbelief. First, doubt says, I can't believe yet. You might doubt this morning some things about God. I've, I had a recent a coffee with a guy and he just said, I, man, I think there's a God and I believe that there's a God, but can this Jesus have done really all this? Could all of the Bible be true? 
I find many Christians today, the percentages are quite high, that they say they're Christ followers that don't believe all of it really happened. There's an element of doubt. There's an element of question. What do we do with these things? Because wouldn't we agree in this room, we're not all 100% sure all the time? Especially when you find yourself in the doctor's office and they say, here's the prognosis of your condition. Or when you stand at the casket of a family member or a friend, or you watch the news, isn't there some question in your mind, is there a God that listens? I think if we're to be honest this morning that we all struggle with this, I don't know if I can fully believe. Doubt says, I can't believe yet. Unbelief says, I will never believe. It digs their heels in. Doubt is saying, as there's an honest struggle, I have an honest struggle with this. Unbelief is stubborn pride. Doubt says, uh, I'm looking for truth and, and I'm searching for it. Versus unbelief is content with their own opinion or view. I just believe this because I believe this because it's mine. And doubt asks questions where unbelief refuses to hear any answers. I'm sure you probably could categorize people in your life, and it could be you this morning that's come up with kind of your own summary of answers or has had something that's wounded you deeply in church experience. Because can we just be honest this morning? All of us have been wounded by the church in some way, shape, or form. Could we all be honest? I have. The funny thing, we were just talking in the lobby, church is easy, it's the people that are difficult. But that's the problem, right? Because we are the church, and if we are all honest, we've been wounded. The problem is that should not add to this bin of doubt and then start to point a finger at God. Man, I'm reading some great stuff. Larry Crabb's book, Looking for God, right now. Often doubt, when it's not dealt with, and life doesn't go our way, we bail. Often when we have questions about God and doubt and, we've, and life doesn't go our way, we didn't get what we needed. The prognosis didn't happen the way I wanted it to. My family member did this to me. I was abused this way. My past, my parents, you could fill in the blank. When those things begin to unfold, most cases people doubt that's unresolved, not fixed or answered, but undealt with and undiscussed. Those people bail. They leave quickly. We'll find that towards the end of this time. So this morning, uh, Paul Tillich says it this way, really, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. There's a part of us that has been flawed ever since the garden. That we don't have this 100% garden-like trust in God. We talk about it. We honestly sing about it. Now, I mean, we sang some amazing songs up here. How many of you were saying, all things work together for my, you know, my good? Do, really? Do you believe that? I would, I would imagine some of you are struggling to really believe that this morning. Why is it that the Scriptures say that the church should gather together and be reminded of what he is about and what he can do and what he has done. Why is it important that we get in, into groups? I, man, we've getting some pushback from some people about, I don't want to be in a group. I want to live my life out individually. Friends, part of the reason is because you've been designed and built to hear 
other people's faith journey, to hear their doubt, to wrestle with people together, to work out your faith, as Paul says, to work it out together. Not just to sit in chairs and hear a pastor talk to you, but for you to talk out loud, man, when this happened in my life, I had deep questions and I had doubt. Do you feel free to doubt this morning? It doesn't mean unbelief. Doubt starts, as I said, in the garden. And I start with Eve, not to um, you know, make the, the females in here feel really bad, but honestly, you are the first to experience doubt because Eve doubted what? The goodness of God. God said, everything in the garden is yours. Don't do this one thing. One rule. Isn't it an interesting study to think that when we focus in what we can't do, we lose sight of what has been given? Sometimes we can so focus in on Christianity of what we're not supposed to be doing, we lose sight of what we've been given, and that is freedom. And that is blessing and so much more than we could ever... I mean, if you put the list of rules with the list of blessing, there's not even a comparison. Eve finds herself doubting God's goodness. And Adam does the same. He is not good enough. We don't trust him fully. Abraham and Sarah, remember that? They're told they're going to have a baby. And they're going to be about 100 years old. Both doubt God by what? They laugh. They laugh at God. God, yeah. Gideon. Gideon hears a word from the Lord and says, I'm not sure if that was you, God. I'm doubting that that was you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay an animal skin, a fleece out, make it drenched with water the next morning, if this was really you, and dry all around it. God does it. He is wringing out the proof. What does he say? I don't know if that was really you. I'm doubting again. Could you do the same thing but reverse it the next morning? Make it dry on the fleece and soaked around it. And God does it again. Gideon is doubting. How about John the Baptist? We think he's just amazing. In prison, he sends disciples to ask Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 and says, Tell, ask, he says, ask Jesus, is it really you? Are you really the one? John the Baptist is even doubting. Friends, there is, the word doubt is all throughout your Bibles and it pops up. It says that there's doubt that can start to seep into our lives and if we don't acknowledge it, I think this is part of the struggle with college students today in homes, in your homes, in our homes. If we do not give permission to doubt and not just slap Bible verses onto people and work through their doubt, we do not enable them to have a dialogue when they sit in front of a philosophical or a secular professor at a college and they just strip them down. We need to be able to dialogue about doubt. And friends, I have doubts as a father, as a husband, as a pastor. It is, we have some freedom to do that. This reach a, is a peak when the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has died, he's resurrected. He's, he's revealed himself to his disciples. But then listen to this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, 
but some doubted. Now we can just say maybe he's just talking about Thomas or the reality that some of them doubted if this could really be true, if this could have really happened. And Jesus does not shame them. He, he doesn't call them out and saying, how dare you have doubted me? You questioned me. You see, as Dale Bruner will talk about it, the Christian faith is bipolar. I love this picture. Is bipolar. Disciples live their lives between worship and doubt, trusting and questioning, hoping and worrying. In other words, there's this interesting relationship when we have with, with our faith that it's accompanied with some level of doubt. Because we can't know everything, and when we know something, it removes the, necess uh, the necessity for faith. Let me explain. I, I don't normally do this, and this is probably super inappropriate that we just had you know, Bobby talk about financial peace, but I, for the first time, bought a Powerball ticket for this message. <laughs> for this message. And I promise if I win, I will give most of it away. Okay? You heard that, God. Okay. Uh, but the drawing was last night, and I purposely bought this because I don't know if I won, but I have faith that I did. You really can't question that faith, right? But the problem with that is what happens if one of you stands up and says, I, <laughs> like I buy these all the time, and I have the numbers, and you read them out. And whether I won or not, what happens to my, the need for faith anymore? It's gone. Why? Because there's proof. Often we work so hard at trying to prove that Jesus was who He said He is, that the Bible's true, that we realize that we remove the very thing that the Scriptures say. And without faith, it is impossible to what? To please Him. Hebrews chapter 11.1 says, and faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or the conviction of things not seen. Meaning, faith is me taking a step in things that I don't fully know or understand or have proof for. Now this is not to discredit that there's, there is tons of proof about your Bible and its historical accuracy, about the science that's taught in Scripture, about the prophetic um, uh, about prophecy being fulfilled in the midst of itself in literature. Secular historians will value that and give you the proof. The life of Jesus. You can't discount that. The writing of the different books, as opposed to Muhammad having his own kind of experience and nobody else witnesses it. The Bible, the life of Christ, many things line up that there is plenty of proof, but there is still so much unanswered. And so when we read the Ephesians passage, it's, for, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not proof. It says in James that, boy, you believe that God is one? No big deal. Demons also recognize that there's proof, and they know Jesus is who He says He is. They've just decided to be what? Anti-theists. They are going to oppose God even though they know who He is. 
So I'm setting you all up with this backdrop here this morning because I want you to understand as we look at Thomas, I want you to challenge you to look at yourself. Because how many of you have needed God to show you something? It might have been a fleece. God, if you're real, read the Psalms. Read David saying, are you hearing me, God? And Larry Crabb talks about that we often find our faith rattled most because we've attached faith to our own happiness. That if our lives don't go our happy way, then I'm going to doubt God. And I'm going to question God and I'm going to move to unbelief. Where does it say in Scripture ever, hey, accept Jesus and it is awesome. Everything goes perfect. You don't fight with your family. You have no problems in your marriage. Finances go perfect. I mean, Bobby and Harper just got saved. See how that works? (laughs) Everything just works out. Do you see that our faith should not be attached simply to how we think we want life to run? Faith is truly tested in the midst of struggle. Now, in all fairness to Thomas, Thomas, they say, isn't necessarily an atheist or an agnostic. He knows Jesus, who is who he says he is. He is so distraught, one of the commentaries said, that he can't quite fathom resurrection. He needs proof. And so we're going to look at this text here as we finish up this morning. John 20, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, uh, uh, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Uh, friends, this is like saying, relax. Let the anxiety go. It is a very deep word. It's not just, hey guys, how you doing? I'm here. It's, it's, it's a, a blessing to say, It's all going to be good. Shalom. And he says, and when he said this, he showed them both of his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 22 and 23, And then when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. There's a little asterisk there because that this is not necessarily saying that Jesus gave them the Spirit. It was symbolic about the breath of God bringing life to them. Verse 23, again, another misinterpreted term. We could talk about that. We'll probably talk about that next month. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Uh, This is more about them teaching a new way to interact with people, not an idea that the priests forgive people or apostles forgive people. It's an important distinction I want to make sure that I throw in here because this gets abused quite a bit. But it goes on, it says, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not one of them or with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails and my hand into his side, I will not believe. I mean, that sounds digging the heels in, doesn't it? So what's going on here? How many of you have had an experience, something go on, and you tell a friend 
and I, Trisha was sitting here in the first service, or your spouse, and they say, I don't believe you, and be completely offended. Anybody? None of you feel that. I do. Like my wife. I've said to my wife, I've read this, and this is true, and she goes, I don't believe you. What? <laughs> do you think I misread it? Or I didn't experience that? What are you talking about? No, I just don't believe you. That's like offensive. Imagine with these disciples that Thomas has been with them for three and a half years. He's seen Jesus. His friends, these, these fellow men that have gone through a lot together, come back and say, we've seen Jesus. Nope, not buying it discrediting their witness. I mean, that had to be an awkward moment. We don't read a lot of the fine print. It would be interesting to see what would happen in between this. That's a heaven question. But him making this statement, unless you put the proof in front of me, I'm not going to believe it. Jesus, knowing this about Thomas, very interesting. Uh, he says it this way, after eight days... His disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them now. Jesus came, uh, and the doors having been shut, uh, shut, and stood in their midst, said, Peace be with you once again. And he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Interesting to note that Jesus doesn't walk in and say, Thomas, I heard about what you said. You're a dirtbag. <laughs> you know, he doesn't say, I'm offended. What happened to the three and a half years I taught you? I'm so, I can't believe you didn't believe in me. He doesn't even discredit in faith. In fact, it doesn't minimize Thomas's belief. I think often we think that doubters have less belief or have less of a faith, or less of an impact, and yet, really what we're going to find that Thomas, um, kind of Mediterranean legend, is that he went to India and he was speared to death, martyred for Jesus, and today, there is a district in India that makes its spiritual roots all the way back to Thomas, the doubting disciple preaching the truth. I think it's a great credit to how Jesus brings to each of us exactly what we're going to need. How many times have you been in a situation just saying, today, God, I just, I just need something. Could I just, a word, and I get that text or that email or that friend tells me something. God, you know what? We, I'm trying to be obedient in finances. I'm trying to, to be disciplined. But if you just could give us one encouraging man and that check in the mail or that money you had hidden somewhere in your pocket or, or some account. Isn't it amazing how in those moments God brings what we need in those seasons? He does that for Thomas. Thomas answers and says to him, maybe one of the best and most beautiful phrases all in Scripture, my Lord, my God. It is the one time it's used in all of Scripture and is one of the deepest pictures of Thomas proclaiming his deity and his messiahship. No one else says it this way. My Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed, kind of rhetorically. 
But he says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. There it is. John says, faith, that large amount of faith is going to be from those people that don't have all the proof. Friends, we can't proof people into the kingdom. We can't proof people to Jesus. At some point, it's going to be a faith, a belief, a trust, a moving away from distrust and unbelief towards I believe in what? As the beginning that it said, that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He died and rose again for me. So the application here is I want to give you three types of doubt, two of which are permissible but need to be addressed. First is cognitive doubt. This just simply means I have questions. I think if you're young in this room, this is critical for you with your family, with youth pastors, with anybody you can to begin to wrestle with the questions you have. And it doesn't mean you have to be young, any of us but especially those who will eventually leave their home and be placed in a world that is doing everything it can to strip out God. I have questions. Cognitive doubt, intellectual questions are okay. Left unanswered and left to just intellect, you can get lost. And I have many a friend that love Jesus dearly that have gotten so inside their head about proof and answers and philosophy that have walked away from the faith. The second is emotional doubt. This is where you say, it doesn't feel true. This is where that thing hits you in the doctor's office that you got that, that doctor coming in and saying, you have cancer. Or you're standing at the casket of a family member or friend. Or finances have not gone away. Or you've been looking for jobs for months And you're saying it doesn't feel like he's there. It's watching the news and seeing children out of a tornado pulled out of a school and saying, God, really? What is that? Sometimes we don't feel like there's a God. Like he's really listening. I I can remember praying last week outside my window looking in the yard just saying, Sometimes I wonder, God, if you're really listening. I think those things are okay to work out. And that's why we tell you to get into groups with people and almost it's like stripping down some of the church clothes and the church speak. You, you doubt sometimes? Yeah, do you? Yeah. To work out your faith, as Paul says, to talk about those things and not to rest in doubt, but to get, when you get someone's story, man, I doubted, but guess what God did with me? This is why us living out our faith in community is so powerful. But left undealt with, it can become what's called volitional doubt. And this is with someone that has so much pain And so many intellectual questions undealt with, they get bitter and full of rage and hate. And then it becomes, I hate God. And maybe more to say, I hate people that hurt me, and I'm going to hurt that by telling them I hate God. And we have a whole culture of people out there that are trying to, they live in this volitional doubt. They've chosen to just doubt God this way and bring pain 
Keller says it this way, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe, as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight, and friends, I've seen it, if he or she has failed over the years to listen patiently to their own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection and conversation. That's why we want to get you into groups and dialogues and talking and praying together. Because if truth be told, every one of us this morning has experienced doubt. And this is why Paul writes, I'm so glad Paul wrote this, for now we see in a mirror dimly. It doesn't say anybody sees it super clear. I don't care what other church is preaching it right or doing it right, what other Bible study, what other right books or the wrong books or the right way and the wrong way. The bottom line is we will all see dimly on this earth until he returns because it says, but then face to face. In other words, one day we will see him face to face and it will be made clear. That's refreshing because I see dimly every Saturday night before I get up here, I have a very foggy view and realizing, uh-oh, pastor has doubts too. This morning, as we go to our response time, I'm going to challenge you to say that faith is a choice, not a feeling. Belief is a choice. Henry Nouwen, a great Christian author, once talked about this famous trapeze group at a circus that he met. And he met the flyer. The flyer is the one that lets go of the trapeze and does these amazing acrobatics in the air and then is caught by the one that's called the catcher. Some great terms, right? The flyer and the catcher. And Henry Nouwen was talking about how amazing this flyer was, just showering great affirmation about how beautiful it was. And he says, oh, but listen, this all works because there's one that will catch. I do nothing for the security of my landing. It is all up to the catcher. He says, my one responsibility, and this is what hit Henry Nouwen, is I have to let go and trust the catcher will catch me. Oh, that, that, that hit me. So much of our journey is about proof. Will the catcher be there? Is it 100% risk-free? Friends, belief brings sight. And when you can begin to let go of some of the doubt, of some of the questions, and trust this is what we've been reading through the whole Gospel of John, that Jesus says, believe in me first, and then you will see that I will catch you. What a believing that could be. What a power that could be in our lives. As you go to the table this morning and you pick up the bread and cup, might you acknowledge your doubt and tell God your doubt? And might you say to him, but yet I still let go and choose to believe this morning. 
Father, we pray over our church body as we respond to you this morning and going to the table to, re- to remember the blood and body sacrifice of your Son, the great gift to us. Might we trust and believe in that alone. And might you root us deeper in the midst of our doubt and our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.